You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, how grateful we are for uh, a day when we can come apart and meet together. And uh, that has taken on a whole lot of new significance that we haven't been able to meet for two years. And now as we, uh, as we share together from the Word of God and uh, look at the precious, uh, most precious truth that has been given to your people for the world in these last days, we invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And I pray that the words that I speak and that Pastor Mark speaks and that we hear today will be the words that come from the, from the throne of heaven, uh, drawing us to you and teaching us how to live in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we, uh, we are glad to be able to be together again after a pandemic season and uh, to be able to share together some of you. How many of you happen to be able to attend or listen to any of the classes that I taught in the past at uh, camp meeting? Catch a few of those, okay? The reason I mention that is because this is the next step. And we are building on the history that we've already studied and that you've studied. There are a couple of books that I want to remind you of that are very important in setting the stage for what we're doing here. One of them is called uh, The Return of the Latter Rain. Both books are by uh, Ron Duffield, and I want to make sure that you are aware of the importance of the history that we have. <coughs> Ellen White makes it clear that if we forget the way God has led us in the past, we will have difficulty. Now, I'm, I'm emphasizing the negative, but she emphasizes the positive, that if we don't forget how God has led us in the past, it will be a blessing to us. And you want to be able to understand uh, God's history because it will help us in understanding the truth of uh, the subject of righteousness by faith. The subject of righteousness by faith has been pondered, has been studied, has been dialogued about, in, and even argued about in the Seventh-day Adventist Church for a long time. And that may be not all bad, because the fact of the matter is the devil does not want us to be united on a very basic and simple truth. At the end of the day, this subject will determine eternity for us. It's that important. Especially in these last days as we're watching the uh, prophecies being fulfilled around us, we're recognizing just how important our connection with Jesus is. And, and I really want to emphasize that this is not just about head knowledge, but this is about our experience with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But our relationship with Jesus is based upon information. That's why the Bible is there. 
It is that which connects us with Jesus. And Ellen White says this, to be able to put it into um, a direction for us. Up on the screen, you see this statement. It says, the end is near. We have not a moment to lose. Light is to shine forth from God's people in clear, distinct rays, bringing Jesus before the churches and before the world. One interest will prevail. One subject will swallow up every other. Christ, our righteousness. At one time in the discussion, a hundred plus years ago, in the Adventist church, one Christian, Seventh-day Adventist Christian leader, was hearing these messages of Christ our righteousness and actually printed an article in the Review and Herald entitled, Our Righteousness, Not Christ's Righteousness. That's how controversial the experience had become. And it's something we need to be reminded of and always will be Christ, our righteousness. Along with all the agitation and arguments have come a multiplicity of theories about righteousness by faith, often making a doctrine that really should be simple, awfully complicated. When we look back at the history and we see how God led his people from 1888 in the years that followed, Four principal people come to my mind, and there are others, in terms of teaching the Word of God in simplicity. One was A.T. Jones, one was E.J. Wagner, another was Ellen G. White, and another one that I've come to really appreciate in uh, my personal study is W.W. Prescott. And in our history time, and a couple years ago in talking about this, we had a chance to be able to look at the messages these individuals were sharing from a historical point of view. But what we want to do today, and in the days that follow, Pastor Mark Howard and myself, we've teamed up together to be able to share the message of righteousness by faith in its simplicity, trying not to make it complicated, trying to make it straightforward. How many of you were able to listen to Brother John Ross's message last night. Praise the Lord. You never know what another speaker is going to say, but you always know when the Spirit of God is leading, because the Spirit of God is always saying the same thing. Spirit of God is not conflicted. Spirit of God is consistent, unified, and He does that through His workers. A.T. Jones, Wagner, White, Ellen White, um, Prescott, they spoke the same message. Brother Jean Ross, I texted Brother Howard last night and I said, he's preaching our message. And I'm saying hallelujah. Now there are times when I'd say, that's kind of scary because people won't want to hear it twice. But we are going to look at it a little bit more in depth in the time that we uh, meet here together, and we're going to look at some of these things. As we've shared the history from 18, as I've shared the history from 1888 and uh, many other places uh, 
Other seminars have done it in similar ways. We're attempting simply to bring clarity by God's grace to this question. I want these questions. I'm going to leave you with some questions before I give Elder Howard a chance to speak here. You see, it's become apparent from the discussions that righteousness by faith really, what is righteousness by faith really? What does it amount to for us? And here's some of the questions you want to be asking yourself. Whether or not we can truly overcome sin and to what degree? It seems as though that is the bottom line when it comes to this question. It, it seems the church has been walking, walking around this question all over. But that really is the heart of the question. Whether we can attain to Christian perfection and what that means exactly, whether or not the overcoming and or perfection takes place before or after Jesus comes, whether there will come a time when we will no longer need the righteousness of Christ, and finally, how our understanding of these things affects our personal assurance of salvation. Those are questions. Those are not the answers. Are you with me? So that's what we're going to be looking at in the next five days. To seek answers to those questions with clarity and also by God's grace with simplicity. It's not a chance in the world that we're going to cover everything in detail. But hopefully by God's grace enough to be able to give us assurance and direction of how God is leading his people. Remember, this is a subject the church has been struggling with for a century, and so we are working now to bring uh, clarity to that message. But we do believe that we can provide enough of the common, of the, enough of the information that all of us, no matter whether we have degrees or we are simply students of the Bible, which, by the way, we all are, are we? so that we can find the truth there and understand this foundational teaching. So, Earl Howard, why don't you come and start to lead us into this, give us a, some direction as we move into the theology of Christ, our righteousness. All right. Well, thank you, Elder Snayman. Um, there's a couple of things I want to bring out as we begin. Elder Snayman had referenced the book, Return to the Latter Rain. How many of you have read that book by Ron Duffield? How many of you have seen that book by Ron Duffield? How many of you have been intimidated to read that book by Ron Duffield? Because it's like this thick. I'll tell you that I, I can't say I never, I never read the book cover to cover. I found the audio online. And I've been driving back and forth to Lansing from here for two years working at the conference office. So it's great. You can cover all kinds of stuff. But if you want to get it free online to listen to or to download in electronic format, go to adventaudio.org. Keep going. Go ahead. Well, oh. I just wanted to say, I said two books and then only told you one. The other one is uh, Wounded in the House of His Friends. Oh, my friends, isn't it? My yes. Um, also by Ron Nuffield. So sorry. I knew where you were going, and that <laughs> book also is available at adventaudio.org. And it's available in audio format. And one thing that I liked about listening is that Ron Duffield 
has done a phenomenal job with the history, and he quotes a lot of the history, and it's in extensive footnotes. In the audio version, they read the footnotes in connection with the passages. Because, you know, a lot of times you read the book, and it's like, footnote, I'll get to that later, and you never do. And so anyway, those, that's a resource to get those, uh, those books in electronic format or audio format. And then one other I would recommend anytime anybody's studying this subject. It is, uh, I don't want to say, it's one of my favorite books on the subject, if not my favorite book. And it's a little book by Ellen White called Faith and Works. It's not one of these big, Desire of Ages, Great Kind. It's a little book. I talked to the ABC. I hadn't heard response yet whether they were going to be able to bring some with them. But that book also is available for free on the Ellen White app. And uh, you, can, you can read it there. If you're not into reading apps, you can get the hardcover. I just don't know how many they may have in copies. So if they do have some at the ABC, grab some, Faith and Works. In fact, I should have brought my copy, but I, I'll bring one and you can see it. But it's just, it's about a Steps to Christ size, and it's a compilation of different things. When I say compilation, like Advent, Adventist Home is a compilation of paragraphs, but Faith and Works is a compilation of articles. And so you're just getting the full, and it's just a phenomenal book. Question? Return of the Latter Rain and Wounded in the House of His Friends. Or Wounded in the House of My Friends. Um, did I see another hand? Okay. So <clears throat> I just want to say in this particular seminar, first of all, I don't know how many are aware, but Elder Royce Naiman, how long have you been ministerial director here? Royce has been here as long. I got here in Michigan in 2003, and Royce has been here the whole time in different capacities. He has just retired. This is his swan song, this seminar, and I am so privileged to have been able to work with this brother and friend and to uh, have been asked to help with this seminar. And so um, I know Royce has been studying this his whole life, and I have. It's a passion of my ministry, and neither of us would claim to be experts on it. We're going to try our best in this seminar to, to take things that as Royce has said, have become in many ways theologically complicated and try to simplify them. I wish that we could just present it without going into any of the theological terminology because it's loaded. But the problem is we have come to a point in our history as a church where you have to now talk in the terminology we use and explain it so that you understand what the rest of the story is. And that's our title, isn't it? Elders Naaman, Righteousness by Faith, the rest of the story. Now, today's presentation is called, in the <clears throat> former ti uh, the titles, the Righteousness by Faith, the primer. I don't know if they use the word primer anymore, but a primer was a word they used to use for a, in fact, dictionary definition is an elementary textbook that serves as an introduction to a subject of study. And so what we're trying to understand this week is uh, what the big deal is about righteousness why we need it, where to obtain it, how to obtain it, practically, how do I get righteousness by faith? And why is it so complicated? And I'm going to tell you that, that today and tomorrow, for me, are important, and they lay groundwork. But Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I'm not telling you to skip the rest of today or tomorrow, by any means. But Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, to me, is where the rubber meets the road, especially in our church today, because I really think that in some avenues, we as a church, I don't want to say we as a church officially, 
But there are a lot of voices, whether among lay people, pastors, scholars in the seminary, that I feel are going down a road that is leading us away from the truth God wants us to know in these last days. I can't say any more than that yet. We'll get into that through the rest of the week. So hope you can hang in for that. Uh, I'm going to transition now, and Elder Snaiman is going to tell us about the big deal about what is righteousness. And we're going to just tag team through this thing and um, and see how it rolls. <laughs> Elder Snaiman? We're going to talk a little bit about what is righteousness. Now that seems very basic, but if we don't understand what righteousness is, how can we really have a conversation about Christ, our righteousness? And the truth is that there's a lot of argument over how that all fits into the Christian life today. And that's what we, why we want to be able to talk about this. Um, there are some words that we have to discuss. You will hear us talk about justify and justification, sanctify, sanctification, all of those kinds of things that we will look uh, more at along the way. One of the words that's important here is the word dikaiosene, uh, sorry my Greek's a little rusty, um, and uh, at any rate you didn't want to know all the Greek anyway. You just want to know what the word means and how that fits in here. And according to uh, Strong's Concordance, integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. That is what righteousness is. Righteousness is these things. What does that look like now when we begin to uh, understand this whole topic? What is the root of the word righteousness? You know what I mean when I say root? Every word has, I mean, I should say most words have a, a root, right? So what's the root of righteousness? Right. Very good. Okay? Right. Right versus wrong. Right versus doing what is correct versus what is not what God wants us to do. At the very core of the word righteousness is the word right. It's not according to your idea or my idea, but according to the word of God, it's God's idea. We see in the book of Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 19, I, the Lord, speak righteousness. Do you have your Bibles? That's a good place to be, right? So, right? <laughs> so go to Isaiah, and let's work our way through some of these Bible texts for a moment, just to keep an eye, our focus on Scripture. Isaiah 45, verse 19. Someone read that verse for me here. I'm going to have a hard time juggling my Bible and, and my notes here at the same time. So if you'll read it for us, it will be great. Just uh, speak it out loud, and I know the recording will wish that they had it, but we'll, uh, we'll pick it up all right. Okay? Okay, someone read it, please. So we're looking at what God has to say to us. Is God going to speak to us wrong things? So God is only going to speak to us right things, and at the core of what he is speaking is righteousness. You know, as, 
as I look back, I've, I've been in ministry for 44 years, and as slight correction to my brother, Brother Howard, I'm not yet retired. <laughs> I retired June 30, so I'm still full-time gospel minister paid by the conference for at least, what, nine more days or so? <laughs> at any rate, in those 44 years, as I have looked at this message, I've gotten such conflicting thoughts from people out there that I, I sat around and, and, and just said, I, I just don't know where to go with this. And so you know what I basically did? I'm in just confession. I basically went nowhere with it. And then all of a sudden, and I'm not going to go into all of that. I've told a little bit about that before. As, I, as the Spirit of God began to work not only in my heart, but us here in the Michigan Conference, the lights started to come on. That's the Spirit of God, right? The lights started to come on. Then I started, as I read the Bible, I said, it's been here all along, and it's not complicated. It's straightforward. You know, you see the word righteousness in places you never saw it before. And then you look at it carefully, and you say, this isn't hard. And then the Bible says it very clearly. Now I'm getting off track a little bit, so I want to keep going. Christ... God is speaking to us righteousness. How does he define right and wrong? Someone read Psalm, look up Psalm 119, 172. One person who will, who will look that verse up for me. You don't have to read it yet, just find it. Psalm 119, 172, okay? Someone read Deuteronomy 6, 24 to 25. Somebody else, Deuteronomy 6, 24 to 25. Okay, all right, good. Let's go to Psalm 19, 119, I'm sorry, 172 first, please. So, commandments are righteousness. So the Bible defines it in terms of law, doesn't it? Righteousness and law are connected with each other. It's very clear to us. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, please. So the connection is with law. Thank you both for reading. The connection is, and the definition of righteousness is connected to law. However, there's more to God's law than just a list of do's and don'ts, right? The commandments fall short of revealing God's righteousness to us in the same way that a picture falls short of revealing a person. A picture of my family is not my family. The picture comes short of reality. Paul speaks of it this way. Romans chapter 7, verse 14, if you would. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Someone read that verse for us, please. Paul tells us that the law is spiritual. Now, a lot of people want to say the law is done away with, right? That's really unfortunate, isn't it? Because the Bible tells us the law is spiritual. And God wants us to be spiritual beings, correct? He wants us to be connected with Him. Um, write this one down just to save a little bit of time here. In uh, Psalm 119, verse 96, Psalm 119, verse 96, David says, Your commandment is exceedingly broad. And the point is that Jesus is trying to help us to understand the depth of the law. That's why when he was teaching the people and he said to them that hating someone is equivalent to murder or lusting after someone is the equivalent to adultery, as in Matthew chapter 5 and, uh, and the uh, Sermon on the Mount there, 
what is Jesus trying to say? It's deeper than just a do or a don't. It's the condition of the heart. It's the condition of the experience. This is what makes a real difference for us. Um, the Psalm 119 verse 96 was first one, and then Matthew chapter 5 for what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount where he's speaking about hate and murder and lust and adultery. Uh, Matthew 5, 21, 22, and Matthew 5, 27 to 28. The righteousness of God is outlined in the commandments and it reaches beyond the surface into the heart. That's why Isaiah says, Hearken ye that know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. That's Isaiah 51 verse 7. Isaiah 51 verse 7. The New Testament word for righteousness, righteousness is the Greek word diakosini, which is defined in the Strong's lexicon as what we put up on the screen just a moment ago. And Ellen White says this in Signs of the Times, not, not Signs of the Times, uh, 5T, I'm sorry. And she says, the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. You see, Strong said it is correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Ellen White says it's the thoughts and feelings combined up that make up the moral car character. Righteousness then, to put it simply, is in essence the character of God. When we look at first uh, selected messages uh, on the screen, page 198, Ellen White says, the righteousness of God is absolute. The righteousness characterizes all his works, all his laws. Righteousness is, in essence, the character of God. She goes on to, and I should say, and says in Amount of Blessing going on, she says, Righteousness is holiness, likeness to God, and God is love. It is conformity to the law of God, for all thy commandments are righteousness, and love is the fulfilling of the law. Righteousness is what? Righteousness is love, and love is the light and the life of God. Before we can talk about righteousness by faith, we have to understand what righteousness is. One of the challenges, of course, is as we define righteousness, it begins to be overwhelming because I don't know if you realize it or not, but we don't have righteousness, right? I don't have righteousness of myself. The multiple definitions of righteousness lead us to an ultimate conclusion. Righteousness is holiness. It is likeness to God. It is conformity or compliance or obedience to the law of God. It is love. It is the light and life of God. This righteousness is the requirement of all who will enter heaven. The unrighteousness of the world will not enter into heaven. 
because the Bible tells us the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Someone else read 2 Peter 3, verse 13. 2 Peter 3, verse 13. How many of you want to go to heaven and be with all those sinners that have uh, murdered and killed and I, you know, whatever else, murdered and killed, that's a go together, don't they? And stolen and a few other things. How many of you would like to go to heaven and find all those people all there? Aha, uh-huh. you were listening, you were listening, that's good. You want them to be there, but not the same way they were on earth, right? You don't want the unrighteous to be there. You want the ones who have learned to be submitted to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You want to be there because that is where God is and sin cannot be there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. One last verse here that I want us to read. Matthew 5, verse 20. That was quite a statement for Jesus to make. He was trying to help them to understand that it wasn't a list of do's and don'ts that the, uh, that the uh, um, Pharisees and the Sadducees had developed that was going to lead to the kingdom of heaven. He said it must exceed that. Quick question? That was Matthew 5.20. Matthew 5.20. So on the screen, Ellen White said in uh, September 21, 1886, from the Review and Herald, why cannot those who claim to understand the scriptures see that God's requirement under grace is just the same he made in Eden? Perfect obedience to his law. In the judgment, God will ask those who profess to be Christians, why did you claim to believe in my son and continue to transgress my law? The gospel of the New Testament is not the Old Testament standard lowered to meet the sinner and save him in his sins. God requires of all his subjects Obedience, entire obedience to all his commandments. He demands now, as ever, perfect righteousness as the only title to heaven. So, Elder Howard, come and tell us how much of that righteousness we really have. That's a sobering, sobering thought. And I have to tell you, it's going to get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. How many of you when you really think a little bit about this concept of righteousness, are a little overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. We should be. Now some people say, oh, I'm not overwhelmed, so I believe in Jesus. I, even then, Daniel, you know Daniel the prophet, who nobody could find anything wrong in his life when they went through it with a fine-tooth comb except for how he worshipped his God, and yet when he came in the presence of God, he said, all my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Perfect righteousness is the requirement. This, this perfect character of God, rightness in thinking and feeling and acting. I think about that passage of Jesus where he says, the right, your righteousness, if you're going to enter to heaven, it's got to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's so funny because it seems that generally we say, all oh, the Pharisees, they were so overboard. And the mindset is when we believe, uh, they were so overboard and we just need to relax our and, and I'm not talking about they were overboard on certain things. But there's this mindset that somehow when we believe in Jesus will be less faithful instead of more faithful. And so when Jesus makes that statement, he's saying they didn't even come close. The righteousness that's required of heaven is 
very clearly, as Elder Sneeman alluded to, a righteousness we don't have. Now, I want to elaborate that on that a little bit more. I want to talk a little bit about the law of God. How many of you have um, Christian friends who think maybe you're a little nutty because of the Sabbath? You know people like that? They're like, okay, you're... Don't you guys know the law was done away with? Have you, have you encountered that mindset? I shared yesterday, we were talking in a class we did for our manual training on the law on the Sabbath, and I just want to share with you something that came to me a, a, a little while ago that just is fascinating to me. Now, you're, if you have uh, friends from other denominations, Christian friends, who believe the law is done away with, and they don't believe in the law, they don't believe in the Sabbath like we do, but they do believe in justification. They'll talk about justification. All Christians will believe in justification. We're justified by Jesus. I want you to think about something with me, and this is what I told them yesterday. I'm going to take Janice here, and I'm going to say that Janice and I, let's say we're having this discussion, and, and you walk in, and you don't need to know what the discussion's about. You walk in, and you hear me say, Janice, you're just trying to justify yourself. What do you know that Janice is trying to do? At least I'm telling her she's trying to do. Have you heard that expression before? You're trying to justify yourself. How many of you have heard that before? How many of you have tried to justify yourself before? <laughs> okay, so when I say you're trying to justify yourself, I'm saying she's trying to... Reason it out that she's doing the right thing. Okay, she's trying to show that she's right. And, and perhaps she is right. You know, to justify, maybe she is right in justifying herself. But the point is, to justify is to show one to be right or correct, right? And I asked you, have you tried to justify yourself before? You said, many of you said yes. When did you try to do that? Think of an instant when you felt you needed to justify yourself. When was it? When you were accused. And listen to me carefully. The only time anybody seeks justification is when there's accusation. When there is an accusation, right? If there's no accusation, I don't need to justify myself. It's when the accusation comes that justification is needed. In the Christian life, when we talk about justification, where is the accusation coming from? And be careful. Don't say the devil. Because everybody says, which it is, the devil's an accuser of the brethren. The Bible tells us that. But I want you to go to your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And let's see what the Word says about where the accusation comes from. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in verse 19. We're going to do a little bit here in Romans 3. There's a lot of great stuff in Romans 3. Actually, I love the book of Romans. The whole thing is fantastic. Now, notice Romans 3.19. It says, now we know that whatever, what? Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that, how many mouths? Every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What is it that declares the world guilty before God? In the context, where does the accusation come from? The law. The law condemns us as sinners. Sin is the transgression of the law. Do you follow that thinking? So let me ask you this question. What is justification to a person who doesn't believe the law exists? There is no need for justification if there's not the condemnation of the law. If there's no law, there is no transgression. If there's no law, I don't need justification. I don't need a Savior. I don't need grace. Now, I'm going to tell your Christian friends, don't process this through. But the concept of justification itself necessitates law. And the Bible says the law of God condemns all humanity under sin. Right? 
Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now we could talk about, I could give you a number of reasons why the law can't justify, but I'm going to go with Paul's reason right here. Paul says, therefore by the deeds of the law. What does the word therefore mean? Have you ever heard the expression, whenever you read the word therefore, you need to go back and find out what it's there for? You ever heard that? Therefore is a concluding statement. Therefore means for this reason. So when you're reading something like this, therefore, for this reason by the deeds of the law. Wait, 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 wait hold on a minute. What was the reason? I've got to go back and find out what it's there for. What does it say in verse 19? What has the law already done? It's already condemned me as a sinner. So how in the world am I going to go to the same law that just condemned me as a sinner for justification as being innocent? That's Paul's reasoning. Like the law already condemned me. How am I going to expect righteousness out of the law when it's already said I'm a sinner? I said other reasons could be given. But if a judge sentences you and convicts you as a criminal, how in the world are you going to go back to the same judge and get him to declare you innocent who just declared you guilty? You're not. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. We could also say, if the law has condemned us, I could say, well, yeah, but from now on, I'm going to be good. Ever heard people do that? We reason that through. Can you imagine a guy, the judge sentences him to 15 years, and he says, but judge, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to, I'm not going to, no more assault and battery for me in the future. The judge going to be like, oh, that, that, that counts as time served. No, it's not going to work. See, see, we have a problem, and the problem is the law has already condemned us as sinners. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Oh, praise the Lord for verse 21. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, do you remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Let's look at it quickly. John chapter 3, of course, Jesus there in John chapter 3, verse 3 says to Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But if you jump down to verse 16, now we know verse 16, the most well-known verse in scripture, for God so loved the world. And for good reason, the most well-known verse in scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now keep reading. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Whew. Can you say amen to that? Amen. But hold on. He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is... Why didn't God send His Son into the world to condemn the world? world's already condemned, not that that was what he would come and do anyway, but where's the, how's the world already condemned? The law of God has constrained all under sin. It's, 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 it's pronounced the sentence. The wages of sin is death. All humanity has sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the boat that humanity is in. And so the law that condemns us isn't going to justify us. I can't promise, even if I could be perfect from here on out and say, okay, there's still my past to, 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 to uh, answer for. And even beyond this, humanity 
is so corrupt that there's nothing in us. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, that by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Are you familiar with this verse? Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, that's two things. Not of yourselves is not the same as not of works. What is not of yourselves? That means your own righteousness has to do with your works. Not of yourselves. It's not because of your lineage. It's not because of your birthright. It's not because you're born into an influential family, a wealthy family, a notable family. It's not because of who you're related to. It's not because your dad's a famous Adventist preacher. It's not because, in other words, not, there's, no, there's no thing you can count on because of your connections that's going to save you. And then, not of works. Why can't our works save us? Well, we gave one reason that we're already condemned by the law. But the Bible tells us, as Elder Snaman just read, the law is spiritual, but I am. Can a carnal person keep a spiritual law? No, that's Paul's whole point. And you read through Romans 7, you find out what happens when a carnal person tries to keep a spiritual law. So we fall into that situation. How we, the, the, but the Bible does not change the requirement for heaven. Perfect righteousness. Unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, as we have already shared. But how much of that righteousness do we have? Somebody look up Isaiah 64, 6. Well-known passage. Isaiah 64, 6. And then we're here in Romans. We're going to look at something there in Romans. Then I'm going to have somebody else look up Romans 7 for me, verse 18. Isaiah 64, 6. Who has that? Go ahead and read that nice and loud for us. Okay, how, all, how much of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags? All of them. There's no hope for righteousness coming out of me. Uh, who has Romans 7? Somebody go ahead and read for Romans 7, verse 18. Okay, in my flesh dwells how much good? We like to talk about good, I hear people all the time say, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. In fact, Ellen White tells, let, now let me ask, let, honestly, do people, even non-Christian people, do good things? Now, do some people do good things from bad motives? But do people do good things from good motives, even non-Christians? Now, listen to me carefully. In the book Steps to Christ, and I don't have the reference here, Ellen White says every right impulse comes from Christ. Okay? So there, if, you're do, if somebody's doing a good thing, it's not because of anything in you. In other words, when Paul says, in my flesh, he's talking about in any of us, there's nothing good. If it's good, it comes from God. And this is the message of Scripture that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Righteousness is required of heaven. Righteousness is the essence of who God is, not who we are. And we have, according to Scripture, none of it. Look at this statement here. This is fascinating. Ellen White says in Selected Message Volume 1, just speaking of even our religious services, she says the religious services, the prayers, the praise, the penitent confession of sin, ascend from true believers as incense to the heavenly sanctuary, but passing through the corrupt channels of humanity, they are so defiled that unless purified by, the, by blood, they can never be of value with God. We're just so selfish at the core. I don't know if you've ever... This is a confession of sorts, I suppose. Not that I, I, I want to think this way, but have you ever gone to church and shared something in Sabbath school? Or you're singing the song and you're thinking... 
I sound good today. I sure sound better than the brother over me. I can't. Or, you know, we just are so full of ourselves. And if you think you're not, let me just give you a practical example. You ever see a picture, a group photo? And a group photo, hey, is a group photo that you were in. Where's the first person you look? Like, how did I look? Did I have something in my teeth, right? You got to make sure you looked good. And then you look at everybody else. And if they have something in their teeth, it's ah, because I look better in the picture. We're just inherently selfish. So the Bible requires this rightness of being, the essence of the character of God that we have none of. And so the question is, where do we get this perfect righteousness? And think about the words of Jesus. You remember the rich young ruler came to him and he said, good teacher. And you remember what Jesus said? Why do you call me good? There is one who's good, God. That's the essence of it. Like, God alone is righteous. So if I'm going to get righteousness anywhere, it's required, I have to have it if I'm going to get into heaven, where do I go to get it? There's only one place, God. Which is why, somebody look up Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Jeremiah tells us this in 23, 6 and 33, 16. But we'll look at Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Speaking prophetically of the Messiah, what's he going to be called? The Lord, our righteousness. Why? It's the only place to get righteousness. Now notice with me very quickly, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the great gospel text. Romans 1, verse 16, the apostle says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, because in it, what? The righteousness of, what other righteousness is there? Like the, the point here is, The Bible tells us we need the righteousness of God. That's the only way we're getting into heaven. And that should be awful discouraging until you come to a verse like this and it says, ah, the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ is that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed to the believer. Same thing in Romans chapter 3. Look at Romans chapter 3. We just read it in verse 21 after it just says that No flesh is going to be justified by the deeds of the law. The the law is condemned all. Verse 21 says, Now, the righteousness of who? God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law. It's in harmony with the law, but the law can't give it. It's the righteousness of God. And it's revealed, verse 22, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I want to go to Romans 10, and I'm going to do this quickly and try to leave. Elder's name is going to give some concluding remarks. But this passage is just fascinating to me. We're talking about the fact that righteousness is the essence of who God is. Perfection of thought and character. The the essence of rightness. And that's required of anybody who would live in heaven. Otherwise, we'll turn heaven into a place like this. Sinful world. But we don't have any of that righteousness. The only way we can get it is through God, but God offers it through the gospel in His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 10, verse 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's a fascinating... I could do a whole sermon on that. There's a lot of Christians I know that are real passionate for something, but not according to Scripture. It's not according to a knowledge of Scripture or a teaching of Scripture. You can be excited about all kinds of things. Be animated about it. 
And evidently the Jews real animated about some things. Paul said, but their understanding isn't according to Scripture. Verse 3, for being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is the only kind there is, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. Where do we find the righteousness of God outlined? In the law of God, you know, in the context, watch where he goes. Let me ask you a question. Did the Jews, Paul's talking about the Jews in Christ's day, in his day, in Paul's day, did they submit to the Ten Commandment law of God? Uh, not like Elder Stanley was describing from the heart, and Jesus tried to point that out. What were they not submitting to? Jesus. Like, oh, I, I accept the law, but I don't accept Jesus. Now notice Paul's conclusion here. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, we read that word end. Our Christian friends like to have fun with that. But you heard the phrase, the end justifies the means, right? What does that mean? The end justifies the means. That's like saying, you know, if I have this certain outcome. The end is the outcome. And if I have to lie, cheat, and steal to get there, as long as the outcome is good, the end is good, that justifies all the means I use to get there. Okay? Anywhere, that, that word end means the outcome. That's how it's used here. Uh, different newer translations actually don't use that, that expression. Some of them do, some of them don't. Christ is the outcome. Christ is the end, the, the end goal of the law for righteousness. Now let me ask you what the purpose of the law is according to Scripture. Galatians 3, 24 says the law is our schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. Did God give the law to justify us? What did he give the law for? Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. All the law can do is tell me how out of harmony I am with it. Can it fix me? No. Where do I go to get fixed? The law is the end. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The law is pointing me to Jesus. Like here, you're out of harmony. And the role of the law is to point me to Jesus for righteousness. So I can go back and be in harmony with the law through the righteousness of Christ. Now, now watch what Paul does here. I've got to do this quickly. But he says, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, and incidentally, he's quoting Moses here too. And fascinatingly, he's quoting Moses. I wish time permitted me to do it. You go back to Deuteronomy, and Moses is talking to the children of Israel about their disobedience. And he's telling them that the day will come when you'll be repentant. And, and you'll call out to God. And in that day, he's going to bring you back to this land. And all the cur- he's pronouncing the blessings and cursings of the law. And he says, you know, if you don't go, live contrary to law, if you don't live according to the law of God and you go contrary, you're going to be receiving the curses and you're going to be taken captive, et cetera, et cetera. But when you return to God, God will bring you back into the land and he'll circumcise your heart and he'll fill your heart with the delight to do his will. It's talking about conversion, right? And in that context, he says... Uh, don't say in your heart, and this is verse 6, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Now in Deuteronomy, he's talking about to bring this law down to us. Or who will go across the sea to bring it to us. And again, I apologize, just I don't have time to get into it. But the point that I want you to get is this. When When Moses is talking to the people in Deuteronomy, 
And he's talking in the context of their failed obedience to God. They have come to a point where in their mind it is just unattainable. Okay? So you don't need to know everything else, but you know what I just said now. You just feel like I'm never going to get there. It's unattainable. How am I, who's going to bring this down to me or get me to... I can't get from here to there. Paul takes that connection with the law and he brings it in to the experience of righteousness by faith in Christ. And notice in verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down from above or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. Now what he's saying here is, when you feel like the righteousness of Christ is so unattainable, and how do I get it? Do I go over here? Or do I go over there? And how am I? He says, the word of faith brings it to you. When you, as he goes on, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Now I believe what the New American Standard says, with the heart one believes resulting in righteousness. So this righteousness that's so unattainable that we're reading it, is like, I can't get it. Paul says, if you believe in the promise of God through Jesus Christ, you don't have to make some far journey. You confess the Lord Jesus in the righteousness of Christ comes to you. Now we're going to talk about more about how this works tomorrow. And notice what he says. Verse 10 again. With the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him, what? will not be put to shame. You know, you feel like I'm going to fail. There's no way I'm going to make it. And Paul says, listen, it's not unattainable. The righteousness of God is not unattainable to you. It's available through Jesus Christ. When you confess the Lord Jesus, his righteousness comes to you, and you're not going to be put to shame because the righteousness of Christ will be a free gift to you. Does that make sense? I'm going to bring Elder Snaman up to... Sorry, Elder Snaman. I'm put, we're over time, and I'm blaming you now. Yeah, because <laughs> good. I'm, well, no, I'm We're, we're all guilty. <laughs> stay up, stay up. That's here. right, we are all guilty. Stay up here, we're all guilty. That's why we need Jesus, right? So let's, let's keep this simple. Not complicated. We're talking about righteousness, the real thing. Real righteousness. The Bible's definition of righteousness that comes from God, available to us in only one way, by faith in Jesus. It's just that simple. We've made it complicated, but Paul keeps it simple. Even though he speaks complicated sometimes, it's still simple. Look at the statement Ellen White makes. She says, righteousness is holiness, likeness to God, and God is love. It is conformity to the law of God, for all thy commandments are righteousness, and love is the fulfilling of the law. Righteousness is love. Love is the light and the life of God. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving him. So we want to talk as we continue on in our study in the next few days. There's some words that get passed around, imputed, imparted. What is the connection with a sanctuary? sanctuary? Sanctuary is a precious truth that God has given to God's people. 
it connects to the message of righteousness by faith in a tremendously powerful way. That's where we're headed for the next four days. And by God's grace, you will, I, and Pastor Mark will understand this whole concept even better. But it's simple. Christ is our righteousness. You want to add anything and then have prayer? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what an amazing blessing is the righteousness of Christ. Completely and wholly undeserved, Father, and yet given so generously. I pray, Father, that throughout this week, not just in this meeting, but across this campus, that we would clearly understand how to appropriate the righteousness of Christ, how to exercise faith in Jesus, and leave this campground as new creatures in Christ. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We pray for your continued the guidance of your spirit throughout this day in all of the different seminars and classes. We pray for our adult classes. We pray for our young people that we would all come closer, just a little closer today to Jesus. We ask and pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.